We're going through our series in the book of Proverbs, and uh, if you look in your bulletins, there's a couple Proverbs that we're going to read from today. You can follow along as I read it aloud. Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. We're going through a series on Proverbs, and we're going through a stretch where we're basically trying to analyze what is the life of folly, what is a foolish life. And the way that we're organizing this is we're going through what has traditionally been called the seven deadly sins, except we're going to call it the seven ways of folly. And we've already gone through things like pride and anger and laziness and greed. And today we come to a topic that, uh, quite honestly, I wasn't looking forward to because I didn't think I would have much to say about it, but it's the topic of gluttony. And I'm going to just make a guess that probably most of us haven't thought about gluttony as being a, uh, a sin, right, or a spiritually dangerous thing to, to engage in and to do. And personally, I've never really thought about it, and I don't think I'd ha ever have preached on it unless it, it came up in a series. But we probably should think about it because food has a lot of power, and our relationship with food actually tells us uh, a lot about ourselves as well. And I don't know if some of you are nervous, right, because the sermon is like, oh, are you going to tell me it's like wrong to, uh, to eat and to feast and, and those kind of things? We'll see, right, maybe. Uh, but we should, I think, be a little bit reflective about uh, how we approach food, how we think about food, how we uh, relate to food. Because, you know, if you think about the way uh, people talk about food, especially people in the culinary industry, uh, if you talk about, if you hear how chefs approach food, and by the way, rest in peace, uh, Anthony Bourdain, but if you, uh, if you hear about how chefs talk about food, they, they talk about it kind of almost on a spiritual level. There's this uh, TV show on Netflix called Chef's Table, and you listen to how they talk about food and their philosophy of, of creating food, of serving food, and they believe food to be a very powerful thing. Food is something that can bring people together. Food is something that you can use to express yourself or express your culture. Food is something that can open up people to an entirely new world. Food is something that, what they would say is, it can give people this unique, spiritual, transcendent experience, they might even say. And uh, quite honestly, I think that's a little bit over the top and probably reflective of cultures that are more affluent. But at the same time, I think there's no denying that food has power. Food has meaning. I think in our, our uh, culture in New York, uh, at least uh, more affluent kinds of cultures, middle class, upper class cultures, I think food can also be a status symbol, and uh, this is something that I was reminded of from our elder Fred. Uh, food can be a status symbol, which is why so many people post things on social media about the kind of foods that they're eating, the kind of restaurants that they're visiting. Food can be a source of comfort to many of us, so when we're stressed or we're, when we're anxious, food is something that we turn to to kind of find comfort. Food is obviously a source of great joy, of great pleasure, and even of great purpose which is why some people might say, I live to eat because it provides that much joy and pleasure into my life. Now, food is not always necessarily just food, and I think it's going to sound a little bit silly to say this, but I, I think it's true. Uh, food has 
some kind of spiritual significance. It tells us about who we are. And when food becomes our master, then that's probably what gluttony here is addressing. You know, when you survey the data in the Bible, interestingly enough, gluttony is one of those things that are condemned. And you actually see it paired frequently with drunkenness. So when I, use, when I say drunkenness, I'm actually going to, I mean, when I say gluttony, I'm going to uh, incorporate even the idea of drunkenness into that idea. You see it in the Proverbs here. Proverbs 23, 20 to 21 says, Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty. You see it paired. You see it in the Mosaic Law. There's a place in Deuteronomy chapter 1 where it talks about the rebellious son uh, who doesn't obey mother or father. And uh, the mother and father are supposed to present their rebellious son to the elders, and they say, this is our rebellious son. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And so when I talk about gluttony today, again, I'm including the idea of excessiveness, not just in eating, but even in drinking. And whereas gluttony is the overconsumption of food, drunkenness is basically the same thing. It's the overconsumption of drink. And I think what's interesting about that Deuteronomy 21 passage is this. You know what the punishment for that son is? You take that son to the men of the city and you stone him to death. <laughs> That's what it says in Deuteronomy 21. So obviously the uh, Mosaic law in the Old Testament seems to think that these are some serious sins that violate the holiness of God and worthy of this kind of punishment. Now here's what I think. I think most Americans would read that and they would say, this is why the Bible's crazy. That's a harsh punishment. Why in the world would you want to stone somebody to death for that kind of thing? And uh, I think part of the reason is because that rebellious son easily describes any of us here and perhaps any of our experiences. You see, the teenage years, are they not filled with acts of rebellion against your parents? Do you not disobey them during your teenage years? And when you go to college, what do you do? You eat a lot, right? That's why they call it the freshman 15 and you gain 15 pounds college what else do you do you go to parties maybe frat parties and you drink a lot at these parties and that's just what college students do so I'm going to guess that uh, some of us or maybe many of us had that kind of experience already in our youth uh, or perhaps even currently and so to hear that kind of punishment coming from the Old Testament law sounds rather harsh to us and we're going to return to that passage later but uh, we can at least at least say this that excessive eating and drinking is something that the Bible sees as wrong, simply that. Now, when you get into details, how do you really know whether you're being gluttonous or not? This is a question I was struggling with this week. How do you know? On Thanksgiving, when we love to stuff ourselves with tons of food and we overeat, are we sinning? Is that gluttony? Uh, if we're a little bit overweight, does that mean we're gluttonous? You know, personally, I, my wife complains that I snack too much, especially at night. You know, we eat dinner pretty early, around 5 o'clock or 5.30, so when, you know, 9, 10 o'clock rolls around, I get hungry again. And uh, I go into the pantry, I open up a bag of chips, <laughs> eat some chips at night before going to bed. Is that being gluttonous? I don't know. You know, I think usually we have to be convicted of a particular sin in order to be repentant of it, Right? It really has to convict our hearts that it's wrong and we're offending God. But I don't know if we ever reach a point of uh, conviction of like, oh, this is wrong. I think maybe the closest thing is uh, excessive drinking of alcohol probably gets uh, more people in trouble uh, than not, than excessive eating. Uh, but even then, 
I don't, I don't know if people always know whether they have a problem with uh, drunkenness. You know, I do have a few friends, and uh, a couple of friends that I have, they, uh, they say, I think I may have a problem with drinking. And uh, they're genuinely not sure, though. They really don't know. They're like, I'm, I'm really not sure if I do. I may and I may not. One of my friends even decided to try going to AA meetings. And, uh, you know, after going to AA meetings, he's like, oh, man, these people are so different from me. Like, their lives are broken. They're not functional. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic or not. And, you know, one of the things that you do at AA is you, you admit that you're an alcoholic when you introduce yourself. And th that's a struggle. He's like, I'm not sure if I am. I don't know if I really have a problem with this. He just thought he enjoyed it a little too much. He thought he turned to it a little bit too much from some kind of comfort uh, from the stress and anxiety that he was feeling. But it wasn't like he was uh, drinking to the point of being overly drunk where he was like hungover all the time. It wasn't like he wasn't functional. And he's really struggling. Am I being excessive in my drinking? And so I, I think this, this, I guess the sin of gluttony, it's a little bit, hard to grasp. It's a little bit hard to repent of because we don't always know if this is something we are guilty of. So what do we do? Well, do we look at the data in a scientific way? Let's try that. You know, when it comes to food, there, there's some evidence that shows that as a country, as a United States of America, we are probably consuming too much. Anecdotally speaking, you know, if you travel to other countries, you notice the portions are much smaller in other countries than in this country. Conversely, when uh, different people from other countries come here, when missionaries come here, we had a couple of uh, Japanese folks that came and visited a couple months ago, and I took them to an Italian joint in the city, and their comment was, this is so much food. People actually eat all this? I said, yes, people <laughs> actually eat all this. You know, the United States of America, we, uh, we have big portions. Uh, we're an affluent country compared to other countries. Therefore, we have the luxury of consuming more than other nations. According to the CDC, obesity is on the rise. The latest statistics say this, that 36.5% of adults are obese. That's more than a third of the country. Obesity is also, among, is also on the rise among children, which is why uh, in the previous administration, you had like Michelle Obama, and she was trying to get the message out on the importance of exercise. Generally speaking, we are consuming more calories and exercising less. Am I doing that? Of course, there's a, a couple things that are complicating the story. What complicates the story is this. Uh, people who are living in poverty tend to have less access to healthier foods. Perhaps that could be a contribution. Technology contributes to our inactivity than in the past. And therefore, uh, you know, we probably shouldn't be consuming as much. I can certainly say this. I don't think we should be consuming as much meat as we do in general. There's a documentary about that, and I'm convinced. We eat too much meat, and uh, yet I can't stop. I love meat. I love steak. I love hamburgers. You know, Proverbs 23:20 20 talks about gluttonous eaters of meat. But, you know, I think meat was somewhat hard to attain in the ancient world, and uh, therefore people probably didn't eat as much meat. I don't think if you ask somebody in the ancient world, do you know what meat sweats are? They would know. Does anybody know what meat sweats are? It's like when you eat, eat and consume so much meat, you just start to sweat. That is insane that we have a term for that, right? And we've experienced that. We live in a culture where we are probably just very excessive in our consumption, and quite frankly, we can afford it compared to other nations, compared to other places in his history. 
Does that mean we're gluttonous? Now, I'm tempted to say, yeah, it probably means we are. But again, I, I don't know. I can't say that with certainty. I think the average American might say, well, so what's so bad about that? What's so bad if we are over-consuming, if we can afford it? The Proverbs say it's actually an unwise thing. It's not a good way to live life. And there's a couple of reasons that the Proverbs list here. It says, first, it makes you impoverished and sick. If you look at Proverbs 25, 16 with me, it says, if you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit. And basically what it's saying is this, too much of a good thing is not ultimately a good thing. In fact, too much of a good thing can quickly turn into a bad thing and a harmful thing. You know, in the ancient world, honey is, uh, is probably the chief sweetener of foods, and uh, it would also be used for medicinal purposes. Honey was something that was good to devour. And yet, if you eat too much of it, what the proverb is saying is it can make you sick and it can make you vomit. Now, there are a lot of things that we consume and use in the world that is good and helps us in life, and yet, if we don't exercise self-control, then overconsumption of it is going to make us sick. And there is kind of, I think, this sweet spot where you have eaten enough and you've had your fill and you're completely satisfied, and at that point, you should probably stop consuming. But I think for some reason, uh, in our mind, what we think is, if it's good, then more is better, and then we just keep consuming and consuming until the point where we can't anymore and we get sick. Proverbs also tells us that gluttony leads to poverty. 21.17 says, Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Now this could be true in a literal sense in that if we uh, overconsume, we might eat and drink all of our money away. Uh, there was a documentary uh, a while ago on ESPN, and it was basically about athletes who lost all their money. So they, they made millions and millions of dollars in their playing careers, and after they retire, they couldn't manage their finances well. They're, they couldn't uh, pay for the lifestyle that they got accustomed to, and uh, soon after, they became bankrupt because of poor, uh, I guess, a poor management of finances. And uh, one of the reasons why people lose their money is perhaps because they are not able to stop consuming uh, at the rate that they're used to consuming. And maybe Proverbs is talking about that, that they fall into poverty. But even if most of us don't fall into that category, I think there is a principle here that probably applies to us. And the principle is this. You know, I get this from Tim Keller, his little devotional book on Proverbs. But what he says is, the great mistake of gluttony is basically this. Gluttony seeks happiness directly rather than seeking happiness as a byproduct of responsible living. Think about that. It is seeking happiness directly rather than understanding that happiness can come or ultimately comes as a byproduct of living responsibly. And I think this gets to the heart of why someone would choose to live extravagantly at the cost of future happiness. It is a fundamental belief that we, we have that the way to be happy or the way to be fulfilled is through some kind of direct pleasure, whether it's through eating, whether it's through drinking, whether it's through living in the moment, whether it's through shopping or partying or traveling or indulging in all of the luxuries in life that we can afford or perhaps we can't afford. And I think New York especially encourages this kind of mindset because in New York, people work really hard. And if you work really hard, then what should you do? You should play hard. And therefore, it comes down to immediate gratification versus delayed gratification. And the more immediate gratification becomes the norm, then the more difficult delayed gratification will become. And when that happens, here's my guess. There's probably going to be a lot of unhappy people and a lot of unfulfilled people because 
the better kind of happiness probably comes as a byproduct, as a byproduct. And perhaps we, uh, in our consumption, it won't make us materially poor, but I think it might make us hunger and thirst more and more. And when we feel hungry and thirsty all the time, well, guess what? We're going to feel poor all the time, even when we're not. Second thing Proverbs says is gluttony negatively impacts your community. Uh, that's why Proverbs 23, if you look at 19:21, it says this, Be not among drunkards and gluttons. Be not <laughs> among drunkards and gluttons. Uh, I think some of you probably experienced this in your life. I've certainly experienced this in my life. You have a friend, you go to a party, you go to a bar, that friend gets carried away drinking too much, and you end up experiencing the brunt of it, right? Uh, I remember, or maybe you're that friend actually, and other people uh, are experiencing the brunt of it for you. Uh, you know, I remember just, I've been in like too many situations like that. I remember I was in this situation where I had to carry someone home, and you know what, it wasn't even a friend, it was a friend of a friend, and I'm carrying this person home. <laughs> I'm like, how did I get in this situation? Why am I doing this? You know, I've been in situations where you know, I had a friend who drank too much, and I had to be like, hey, you can't, you can't drive. Give me your keys. And uh, he was very insulted. What do you mean I can't drive? I'm not giving you my keys. I'm like, you got to give me your keys. He starts insulting me and yelling at me. And I'm like, i got to take your keys. Have you been in that situation? Yeah, it's, it's not fun to be in. Next day, sobers up, apologizes, thanks me, saying, oh, I'm so sorry for yelling at you last night. Uh, I'm sure others, I've never been in this situation. Maybe some of you have been in a situation. I've heard stories where you, you get into a fight with people. Why? Because your, your friend who drank too much got into a fight, and you're not even sure what the fight was about, but you got to back up your boy, so you get into a fight. That's what it does. It's not just about you, but it affects your community as well. Now, I don't think anything I'm saying surprises anyone. I think this is actually probably quite the norm. Um, I'm glad... In my age, I don't find myself in that many situations anymore, maybe because I'm 36, maybe because of my vocation, maybe I don't get invited out <laughs> anymore. <laughs> that's fine by me. But you see, that's why Proverbs says, be not among gluttons and drunkards, because they are going to bring you down in a negative way. It's not simply an individual problem, but it's a problem that impacts those around you. And Proverbs advises you to not be among them. Now you read that, and here's why that is strange. When you get to the New Testament, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't follow what the Proverbs is suggesting right here, but rather, what does he do? He is among the drunkards. He is among the gluttons. He does dine with them. He does eat with them. He does associate with them. There's a place in Luke 7, and uh, if you're a man, if you're reading the Bible with uh, the other men, you probably read this this week, but there's a place in Luke 7 where Jesus is talking about how the Pharisees are rejecting him and saying things like, look at him, referring to Jesus, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, why would they accuse Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard? Well, first, because he is associating with those kinds of people. He is dining with them. He is eating with them. Jesus was one to eat with sinners, to eat with tax collectors. And eating with somebody means that you are sharing table fellowship with them. It's signaled that you had some kind of relational intimacy with them. And so the Pharisees, they see that and they say, Jesus, you're a glutton and a drunkard. 
But there's also another reason why they might call Jesus a glutton and drunkard, and it's this. You know, during Jesus' ministry, he seemed to encourage feasting over fasting. And in that passage in particular, it's making a comparison between John the Baptist, who preached the message of repentance, and along with the message of repentance, the message of fasting, and the disciples of John the Baptist fast. But Jesus came and he preached the kingdom of God. And he would say, now is a time to feast. In Luke 5, when Jesus is asked why his disciples eat and drink rather than fast and offer prayers, Jesus responds and he says this, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? What is he saying here? Well, you know, this is, I think, a season of uh, weddings that are starting to happen and, and starting, and uh, perhaps some of you are starting to attend some weddings. You know, at weddings, usually you party, right? At weddings, you feast, you eat a lot, you drink a lot, and it would be very inappropriate to go to a wedding in a very somber way and say, I'm fasting, right? Because it's an occasion to celebrate. Jesus is saying this, I have come into the world, and I have brought this good news of the kingdom, and because of that, this is a time to party. This is a time to feast. You know, Revelation 19 illustrates this. And there is this wedding banquet that is to come in the new heaven and the new earth where uh, an invitation goes out to attend, to be a guest at this wedding party, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what this feast is meant to signal is this, that there is this new kingdom. And with this new kingdom, there is this new life, this new birth, this new hope, this new joy, this new peace, this new purpose, and a new heart, a new heart. And with a new heart comes what? A new appetite for that which completely satisfies and fulfills. And who is that? It's Jesus Christ, of course. You know, Jesus invites us to the wedding, but he invites us to so much more. His invitation is not simply to feast with him, but his invitation is also to feast on him. Because you see, God is a consuming fire, and therefore, God should be the ultimate consumer, right? He created thing, everything for his sake, for his glory, for his purposes. And yet, what we see on the cross is that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, becomes the one to be consumed. He is the one who is poured out for us. He is the one who becomes the bread of life so that we might consume him, so that we would hunger and thirst no more. All our desires, I think, are ultimately a reflection of that deeper spiritual hunger and thirst. All our desires are ultimately pointing to that deeper hunger and thirst, and probably the mistake that we make most of the time is we think that those desires will find satisfaction in things in this world, whether it's food and drink, whether it's something else. But you see what the cross is showing us, what Jesus is doing out of love for us is he is dying and he's saying, I have come to fill your hunger and to fill your thirst. I have come to invite you to feast with me and to feast on me so that you would thirst and hunger no more. By the way, once a month we celebrate communion, something we should be reminded of as we partake in that meal. Now, let me, let me end with this story. 
You know, there's a famous story which many of you probably know in Luke 15 about the prodigal son, and it's a story that seems to resonate with a lot of people. You have this prodigal son, and I think he is the ultimate example of gluttony and drunkenness in the sense that he took all of his inheritance and he squandered all of his money on reckless living. And Proverbs talks about how the glutton will come to poverty. Well, what happened to this prodigal son? He came to poverty. And he was at a point of rock bottom where he longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and nobody gave him anything. That's how hungry he was. Finally, what he decides to do, he decides to return to his father, and he says this to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And if this father were following Deuteronomy 21, you know what he should do. You know what you would expect. You would expect this father to say, Son, Let me take you to the elders. They need to stone you to death, right? But what's interesting is the story doesn't, when Jesus tells this parable, that's not the direction the story goes, but rather the story goes this way. The father felt compassion upon his son, and the father embraced his son. And not only that, the father instructs his servants, and he says to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found i think one of the reasons this story resonates with so many people is is a reflection of the father's heart the very heart of god this parable is meant to show us that when the lost is reclaimed when the lost returns to the father it is a time to celebrate and it is a time to feast. And this parable shows us God's heart for the prodigal, for the glutton, for the drunkard, and the reception that he shows to his son. But you know, the way this can happen, the only way this happens, that this prodigal son is received with such a celebratory feast, is because there's another son who was ultimately rejected and metaphorically stoned to death. That there was another son who took the place of the rebellious son in Deuteronomy 21 and died the death that we deserved and the punishment that we deserved for our gluttonous and drunkard hearts. That is the father's heart. And that's what we see in the parable of the prodigal son. And so what is our takeaway from this? Jesus is better Jesus is better. Feast on him. He's not the means to our treasure. He is a treasure itself. And when that is something we experience, believe, feel, know in a very deep way, I think what happens is it begins to have an impact on our very hearts, on our very souls, where we realize I don't need to find fulfillment in these things anymore. I guess particular to this message, I don't need to find fulfillment in direct pleasures of eating and overstuffing myself in food and drink because that eventually gets tiresome, that eventually gets exhausting, that eventually leads to some kind of sickness, whether physical or emotional or spiritual. But Jesus says, I have a better feast for you, and this feast will fill you the way you long to be filled. Come. And he extends his invitation. He says, come, 
feast on me. Feast on me and be filled. And I pray. Uh, you know, I don't know what kind of uh, practical effect this is going to have on your week. Uh, I don't know why, but I just stopped snacking this week. <laughs> I don't know if it had to do with uh, thinking about this topic. Maybe it does. Um, but I think we are all hungry for something. Feast on Christ, and he promises to satisfy. Let's pray together.